We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey everybody, it's T with Abduction Enigma Podcast. So this week, what I got for you guys is another short clip from Dr. John Mack. An interview with Vicky Landrum about the Cash Landrum encounter. As well as a brief interview with Betty Andreas and Luca. Alright, let's get it. So first things first, I wanted to start this off by saying, I was supposed to interview Stan Gordon, and in fact I did, and we had a great conversation. Unfortunately, the audio came out very poorly, and I have a brief clip of that. Now cut it up to try to make it better, and put it through some filters, and try to clean it up a little bit, it really didn't help. Now that doesn't do Stan's work justice. So I'm going to have Stan on again, and we're going to do another one eventually. And I'm going to set that up as soon as I possibly can for you guys. It was very disappointing to me because we had such a great conversation. I really don't know what happened. So I want to apologize to all of you and Stan Gordon, and I'm going to make up for it, I promise. There we go. So I'm here with Stan Gordon. Um, Stan... I'm just curious, what? How did you begin in this field? Well, I was a eight-year-old kid. I'm an electronics. I get two hundred kids up on one and gather stuff to look under up my microscope. And I happened to hear a radio show, and they were talking about unusual occurrences. They were talking about flying saucers and electronic houses and strange incidents. And I was a curious kid, and I wanted to know if these people were making the stories up or telling the truth. So I went to my local library here in Greensburg, PA, began reading all the books, began to cut articles out of the newspapers. I saw them. I was uh, 16 years old when the incident happened near Kecksburg, PA, about 12 miles from where I live. And I began after that incident in 1965 to go out in the field to investigate incidents. I've been out there ever since. And uh, in 1969, So as you can see from that talk, some of that audio was great, but then all of a sudden it started messing up. Now my whole interview, which me and him did an hour and 35 minutes, wound up being very good quality and then just crap out of nowhere. I do want to clarify for the one person out there, because I'm sure somebody's out there listening to this and thinking, oh, that's the government, or hey, that's the aliens, or hey, that's this and that. No, I think it's just bad audio quality, and that's unfortunately what happens sometimes. But again, I'm going to make up for that. It's owed to you guys and Stan. Harvard University psychiatrist Dr. John Mack is a researcher of a subject that many scientists avoid. He studies people who say they have been kidnapped and sometimes sexually assaulted by aliens from space. A Pulitzer Prize winning author, Dr. Mack, believes that his patients' experiences are real and are not the result of mental illness or some other identifiable cause. His account of their stories is called Abduction, and he joins me now, and I'm pleased to have him here. Welcome. Good to be here. Uh, just, you had to know that when you write about this subject, you are you are moving into a sphere of great controversy and great uh, incredulity. 
um, no matter what your credentials are, and no matter how many Pulitzer Prizes you have, and no matter how many degrees you have, it is a subject uh, of enormous fascination, but also among a lot, huge uh, section of the community that's looked at that incredulity because of the people who say they have had these experiences, no one ever sees any evidence. Tell me how you got involved in this, and why is, uh, why is it of interest to you? Well, in this culture, evidence has come to mean some physical object right. that uh, we can measure, touch, uh, take photographs of, and be certain of its pedigree, where it came from. But I suspect in something which is as unacceptable as a reality as this phenomenon, no piece of physical evidence would satisfy anybody. We'd be arguing that whoever found it was hoaxing it or making it up. But evidence can also come from other ways. Evidence can, in my discipline, psychiatry, and I've played my strong suit in doing this, is evidence that comes from clinical discrimination. And what I found was... A discriminating look at clinical evidence. Exactly. In other words, you, you look and you listen to what a person has to say about their experience. And you say, what could this be? And nothing in my 40 years of working with people prepared me for this phenomenon. In other words, what people were telling me with doubt, incredulity themselves. No one has, in spite of what critics say, anything to gain, as far as I can tell, from this. Nobody wants to be a member of this club. They want to be found wrong, the yeah. people that have had these experiences. They want to be told this can't be. They want to be told there's another explanation for what happened to you, and here it is, and therefore nothing's wrong yeah. with you, and you're not part of some... And these are, exactly, and these are people of sound mind, healthy people, by and large, they've been traumatized, many of them, by these experiences, but they're reporting in great detail narratives that are highly similar, which they have not gotten from the media. Most of these details are not in the media. They come forth reluctantly. They know who to talk to and who not to talk to, which is not true of people who have delusions, you know, or have come yeah. up with something which is a reflection of a, of a mental illness. And the only thing that I know that behaves like that is real experience, where something has actually happened to these people. Then the question is, what has happened? Right. And that's where I've taken it. All right, but here are a couple of questions. One, did you approach it as a wanting to believe or as a huge skeptic? I approach as a huge skeptic. I mean, this is simply not possible. Charlie, when I started this and I heard about these accounts of people, first of all, I was unfamiliar with the phenomenon until about five years ago. Uh, I came at it totally fresh. I uh, had no investment in finding this to be true, not true. Didn't even know about it. And when I heard about these accounts, uh, that there was this man, Bud Hopkins, in New York, who took seriously stories right. of people that said they'd been taken by alien beings into space. This is ridiculous. It's utter nonsense. This can't be. To me, it could not be. This is not something that is possible. There can't be that kind of intelligence working in our universe. There must be something different this, uh, to explain this thing. So to me, uh, in spite of what critics say, I, I didn't come to establish the truth of this. And it was, I was warned not to say you take this seriously. And I was a long time, it was two years before I wrote or spoke publicly about this. All right, tell me what your experience had been before that, just to give the audience a sense of who you were. I mean, you've written a book called Cultural Disorder. Was that the title? What was the title of the Pulitzer Prize winning book well, about, I wrote about a, e. Lawrence? I wrote a biography of Lawrence of Arabia, right, the right. one that uh, had so much to do with the current Middle East right. uh, situation. Right. And, uh, and uh, it was David called Lean's great movie. Yeah, a Prince of Our Disorder. I've been interested in questions of human identity. I'm a psychoanalyst. I've, been, I've done a number of clinical studies of human dreams, nightmares. I've been interested in adolescent suicide, what makes a teenager decide life is so hopeless they want to end it. Uh, I've worked uh, a lot in areas of political psychology, what, what drives us to be so destructive collectively one to another. Nationalism, ethno-nationalism interests me. So I guess, in a way, this work although I didn't, you know, you don't calculate this at the time, grew out of this interest in some way, who are we? You know, yeah. are we these isolated people tearing at each other, trying to carve up the earth for our own purposes, or do we have some larger expanded human identity? Maybe some place in the depth of my soul there was something that resonated with this, but surely as a factual phenomenon, this was simply not possible when I started this. And when did you turn? When did you begin to say, 
I don't have, I believe these people. Or I take them seriously. I take you them know, seriously. the word belief is full of treachery here I know, because that's it, why it I was has a it. sense of, you know, <laughs> right. we're become part of some belief system. Well, I know, but I was using it more in terms of, of take, I, I mean, yeah. take it cr as credible. It could uh, be, what, what's your term of? No. That's right, it's just what you said. I mean, that, that it is something that, that is credible, that involves some kind of reality that these people are encountering, that, that, that needs to be taken seriously. And that, I suspected that very soon, but I, I just didn't have confidence in it. I had to see 30 or 40 of these people, each telling in different, slight differences, highly detailed narratives, terrifying in many instances, uh, which they themselves doubted, which when they would hear that another person had had the same experience, they would become very much disturbed because it meant they couldn't dismiss it as a dream. They couldn't dismiss it as their private mental illness or fantasy. And that, to a psychiatrist, at least to this psychiatrist, was very powerful evidence that something extraordinary was occurring what here. What kinds of things did they tell you, which is part of the book? Well, the basic story is that a person is in their home or in a car, or in the case of one woman uh, on a snowmobile, or in case of children in the schoolyard, and a powerful beam of light comes, where they may hear a humming. And they're frightened, they may be paralyzed, they uh, are moved by some energy. If it's in a house, they'll say, floated down the hall. They may see these small beings, three feet, three and a half feet tall, a kind of thing that you might think they would be hallucinating. The first response often to critics, well, they're hallucinating. But the fact that thousands of people are having the same images, doubting it, telling it with a great emotional power, that's not the way hallucinations work. It's not a mass hallucination in the sense that, you know, everybody's having this experience. It may be a lot of people having the experience, but they're not in communication with each other. It's not a contagion where mm -hmm. people are reacting uh, to, to one another. So this powerful energy comes, these, a blue light or whatever it is, they may see one, two, three beings around them with these huge black eyes, three and a half feet tall, communicate uh, with them telepathically, and then they are moved up through the sky into some sort of an enclosure. They may see a UFO, they may not see the UFO from the outside, and inside there is a more senior figure whom they call the doctor or leader, and that figure is a little bit taller and seems to be in charge. Inside are all kinds of machinery like computer consoles, instruments, unlike anything we really have exact, nothing quite like what we have uh, on yeah. Earth. The walls are curved, there's a kind of atmosphere that's misty inside often, um, and then there's a whole set of procedures that occurs which are very complex, and often what abductees will do when they get together is uh, they will compare, well, what was the instrument that the uh, little creature stuck into your abdomen or in your nose? And they'll draw them and they'll be, you know, they'll see that the, that the or I've had a little experiment I've done where I have them draw them independently and they're, they've had the same instrument. Again, uh, that's very strong evidence. John Carpenter, who's a psychiatric social worker who works with this population in Missouri, has a dozen or so cases where he's kept the people apart, interviewed them, explored their experiences independently and they have like 30, 40, 50 details of what happened in the ship that's identical and they haven't communicated with each other. So there's, there's all kinds of evidence, but it is evidence of, of narratives, kind of evidence that's introduced into a courtroom would, would satisfy a, a jury and a judge, but in this case, since this simply cannot be, we're, we're like the approach is often, well, let's find something wrong with the people reporting this, the abductees, or with the investigator, or whatever, but because there's no place for this in our psyches, at least in, for great numbers of people okay, in the but culture. But let me, let me come back to not get hung up on trip over words. Okay. You, you say these stories are credible. Mm -hmm. Do you, as an intelligent person who's investigated it, believe, I don't know of a better word, think it happened to them? Yeah, again, language, we have that problem, happened. Okay, let, let me just... Do you think it happened? Something, something happened which corresponds to what they're reporting. In other words, I don't think they're Did something happen in their mind or did something happen well, it's, to their again, physical it, being? This, this has forced me to, to challenge every category I've had, like right. in the mind, right. inside, and outside. For example, sometimes the per people are witnessed to be missing. A child, for example, this is my own case experience, goes in to find her mother during the time the mother's having an abduction experience, the mother's not there. Child tells the mother in the morning, Mom, I went into your room, you weren't there. Two young people, fathers are desperate in the morning. Young 
uh, teenage girls. They're gone. They say, they, yes, we're right here sleeping in the, in the den of, of one of the girls. I've, in, I've interviewed both girls, and the father, they came back. They were there. There are lesions on their bodies. There are cuts. There are scoop marks. There's all, there are intricate lesions that don't follow anything that uh, mm -hmm. could be self-inflicted. One person had a quadriplegic that I'm working with has this very complex set of ulcers that follow a pattern on his wrist. He can't have done it to himself. Critics say, wait, they, these are self-inflicted. They're not self-inflicted. But the physical evidence by itself it would not stand up. I mean, you couldn't, because again, it's, it's right. not powerful enough. It's not um, rich enough. It, it, it's, it, it's the company it keeps. It's the fact that it occurs in conjunction with these extraordinary accounts, which in spite of all the criticism that I may be taking it too seriously right. or uh, believing this really happened, there isn't a single case where anybody has found another explanation of what an individual has reported. Why didn't you include the personal histories? Well, I included a lot of personal history where I, I took detailed personal history in many cases. In some cases, as for example, Scott in the book, uh, we interviewed uh, practically well, everyone in the family, in the, in the nuclear family, the uh, brother, sister, parents. Was, uh, as far as we could, we went into every possible person to interview that seemed to bear on the immediate experience. But again, what I was trying to do in this book is to lay out a whole new area that needs investigation, needs much more study, but to set out what are the basic guidelines, what is the basic structure of this field, and see what, uh, what other people can, can follow up in more detail. I, I plan to study or to look at individual cases in much more detail now. You've seen how many patients? Of this sort? Yeah. Uh, over 90 now. Over 90. Um, remarkable similarity in their stories, yes. in their sense of the light mm -hmm. and being taken away. Mm -hmm. How do your colleagues feel about this? Well, the colleagues vary. I mean, when they like, for example, uh, in the case of Sheila, the psychiatrist who had been working with her, who was a skeptic himself, came in the room during uh, two of my sessions. I, I, I'm reluctant to call them hypnosis because it's not, with this group, the experiences are so near the surface, if you just listen to them and allow them to relax, the experiences come forward with enormous power. But he, uh, when he was with me, he knew this uh, Sheila very well because he'd worked with her for about seven years, and he said, Something like this has happened to her. I, can't, I have no other explanation. I know her well. She's not making this up. This is truthful. This is what is going yeah. on with her. And, and the then end, he's been, and he's been most, working with me. Yeah. In the end, that seems to be the most convincing thing for you and for others, is that there's no other explanation. You can't find any other way. You can't find any other way to characterize than to accept yeah, I mean, I've is that it? Yes, I mean, I've looked for every possible explanation. Then I begin to ask myself, why is this so extraordinary in this culture? In other words, what, what, what is it? I mean, for example... Well, I can tell you why. I think, I mean, I think the reason it's so extraordinary is a culture for us to be unwilling to, to buy it, to accept yeah. it, to believe in it, yeah. to, to find it credible. Yeah. I think it is because they, they, no one, it, because no one has, A, they make the point about the evidence. No one has seen the evidence. Uh, and and frequently the other kinds of witnesses. I mean, of all these things, happen for people to be able to confirm. Other people to confirm. But there are. I mean, if you again have uh, independent that they just, examiners I mean, that they find the yeah. same thing. I mean, and they just would. I mean, I think that it's the, it's like near death experiences for people. Yeah. I think. I mean, yeah. it's some of the same kinds of mm -hmm. incredulity that, in fact, mm -hmm. I died and I saw heaven and I, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's something because you, you in the end, it's something you just have to almost take on faith. Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the things that's come to me or as don't. I've been dealing with the the criticism, the I've rational mind in America, I, I, so-called rational, so-called rational. All right. You know, I mean, I came to a point where I began to shift my own thinking. I said, Why what? is this so extraordinary okay. to people to to accept that another intelligence, granted, it's taken an odd form, little beings with right. big black eyes who are sometimes luminous and sometimes less so, uh, entering our worlds, telling us, uh, doing these experiments, telling us that. Uh, in vivid terms on television monitors and directly through telepathic communication that we are causing some kind of ecological catastrophe at a scale that goes beyond the earth itself that the earth is part of some 
network, and that is being communicated, and that there are intelligences in the cosmos that are telling us this. Why would this be so extraordinary? Uh, I, I don't think it would be so ex extraordinary, and isn't. We're beginning to study this in, in, among various other peoples who don't find it that remarkable. Uh, it's that we have come to the place where intelligence is simply a phenomenon of the human brain, that there are, the universe is, dev we've devoided it in a sense of other intelligence. So when it shows up in a kind of odd, frightening form, tells us about ourselves in ways we don't want to hear, the, the approach is to reject the phenomenon, shoot the messenger. And I, I, there's some, because the, you know, you asked me this, I mean, right. the, the intensity of, of the um, wrath, in a sense, that I've, I've brought down upon myself for suggesting maybe this would be better to look at it. For How what, is that wrath for, expressed? Well, it, it's expressed in, in uh, attacks that say, I have no evidence, I've lost, I can, I've lost or my... Or even to the standpoint of saying, uh, do you, you've done some experimentation with hallucinogenics, haven't you? Myself, personally, yeah, well, no. No, uh, but, but you've studied the... No, no. I, I haven't. Uh, I've uh, used this uh, method which uh, uses breath work. I've been interested in meditation. I've been interested right. in yoga, ways that get into alternative, you know, uh, right. non-ordinary states where people can access an, uh, another world. And that may be, in some ways, I, I had somewhat more openness to, to right, right. this kind of phenomenon. But I... I was not ready for a phenomenon that was more than simply psychological, which seems to enter and have physical effects on people. This was something that, that I was totally unprepared for. And yet, uh, it seemed to me that rather than take the phenomenon and reduce it to something familiar where it won't go, just maybe it would be more creative, more constructive, healthier if we would expand our notions of what's real to include something that differs from what we've already believed and known. That might be a healthy thing for us. I, I, I know that this is what I've been told about, and I'll just tell you about this story. And, and I come at it with incredulity as well in sure. terms of believing sure. these kinds of things as I, you know. Uh, and, and people who talk about you, and you've been mm -hmm. on other programs, talk mm -hmm. say he desperately wants to believe this. That's okay. People who come with a scientific inquiry also desperately want to believe that they're going to find something. And they also will cite examples of people where, who have fooled you, who've come forward with, with, uh, with a story, which wasn't true, which you seem to accept. And they say, does that mean that people can get away with telling these stories so that, that you will, for the lack of a better word, buy them? There's a woman, uh, that's all based on a woman that gave a story to Time magazine that right. she worked her way into our group of experiences, fooled me into thinking that she'd had right. real experiences, and then she managed to get a splash on that in time, which has been picked up. I don't know about that. The other experiencers that worked with her or knew her, she was part of the group, thinks that she actually is an abductee who had these experiences, so that they say that she's not just, uh, didn't just lie, which is presumably her mm -hmm. uh, principal credential, according to herself, for right, attacking right, me, right. but she even lied about lying. In other words, that she was, in fact, an experiencer who found another way uh, for reasons of her own, which I, as, uh, since she was someone I work with in good faith, I'm not going to say what her reasons might be for attacking me. I mean, uh, it certainly got her into Time magazine, and, and there was a big splash there. But I, I'm not sure that that uh, person, I mean, I certainly could be hoaxed. I mean, I'm not saying I couldn't be, but uh, I'm not sure in that case it, it really happened. Now, as far as my wanting to believe, uh, people often ask me, what if you're wrong? What if there is some more, quote, conventional explanation? But mind you, that explanation will have to account for all of these narratives among people not in touch with each, each other, other right. of sound mind, the tight association with UFOs, the fact that the phenomenon occurs in children yeah, but a, a as huge young amount. As, Let me just th th yeah. throw th answer that. There's a huge amount of literature out there. Yeah. Right? I mean, about, these stories about people, abductees, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. novel, a lot of people have written about mm -hmm. the experience, and mm -hmm. they all pretty much write about the same, the blinding light level. I mean, people coming mm -hmm. in, and they're all three and a half feet, and they all seem to look similar to now. me. Charlie, I didn't know about this myself five years ago. I had no, uh, there was no stake in having this be so. I'm still, when I'm asked, what if you're wrong? What if someone comes up with other, another explanation? I say, well, that'll be interesting. Yeah. I mean, well, I, mean, I would say you know, to you, as, if you believe in a scientific inquiry, would welcome it. I mean, you're, of you'd course say I'd welcome to it. listen, prove yeah. me wrong here. Prove folks. me wrong. Come up with show some me other, there's a better some way. Other plausible but all I have now is that I'm buying these stories these people have told me. And, and that I come to this with some credentials that others it, might not have. But we do that all the time. That's, that's the fundamental evidence in psychiatry. That's what Freud did. That's what Jung did. That's what Erickson did. 
buying stories, I don't know, but we make our, as careful assessment as we can of what somebody is telling us. Is this yeah. a distortion? Is this coming from someplace else? Are they telling us, are they traumatized in some other yeah. way and they're blaming it on aliens? No case of abduction has turned out, in my experience, my cases and other people's cases, to be something else, sexual abuse or some other kind of... None. Uh, Repressed memory, not, nothing. Not one has been shown to be yeah. something else. How important was hypnosis? It's important, but again, a very basic point, which is often, well, hypnosis gives you false stories. 30% of the material that we get comes before there's any kind of relaxation response or anything that gets called hypnosis. People remember the stories. They remember being taken into the ships. There's a great deal, however, that they feel they're not in touch with, that they're waiting to be able to talk with somebody about. And if you relax them, you don't even have to hypnotize them. If they just relax, this material pours forward with great intensity, terror often, and eventually they come, if you work with them over time, they come to terms with it, and they grow. There's a spiritual growth that goes on here. They, be, they become aware that we are connected beyond simply the human relationships with other intelligences, and which, of course, every other people besides us has known from the beginning of time, but for us, who have lost those senses, as Rilke, the poet Rilke said, by yeah. which we can know the spirit world. Those senses have atrophied in, in our time. Uh, this may be some way in which we're reopening to a world that is filled with, with consciousness, with life, with, with some kind of energies and, and intelligence. Let me repeat this. John Mack is a MD. He is professor of psychiatry at the Cambridge Hospital at the Harvard Medical School and a founding director of the Center for Psychology and Social Change and his earlier books included the 1975 Pulitzer Prize winning A Prince of Our Disorder, a biography of T.E. Lawrence, who is, all of you know, was Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, I think it is those credentials that, that have added something to this. I mean, you come to the table with different kind of credentials, and, and if someone as smart as you are with your credentials, it adds something to the debate. Um, that may get me a hearing, yeah, but it, it does doesn't get you. get you much further than that. Because at some point, I have to say, okay, yeah. study this phenomenon. Don't marginalize it. Don't push it off onto the tabloids. It's something that could be really important for us, for this culture, for humanity. Look at it with me. Study it. Let's find out what it's about. Let's do careful studies of every aspect of this. That's what I would like to see. I got to go. But what's the next step for you? I mean, let's assume you are, again, I'm, I'm hooked on language. Let's assume you're hooked by this. That this, I mean, you are in this place. You're in this area. Uh, whether you like it or not. I'd like know. to pull a few you, hooks out. Yeah, I know you would, but they are hooked you, and, and for better or worse, yeah. and some want to rip you apart, and some want to talk yeah. about, right. I mean, I've heard yeah. people have said to me, look, there's, you know, you got to think about, look at the methodology, and I don't right. approve right. of the methodology, right. and right. I think right. that right. this guy's using the hallucinogen, you know, right. drugs, anything, or whatever anything. they say. I mean, he's LSD, let's, he's this, he's that, he's kill, others. Let's kill the messenger. Yeah. Let's well, they do say that. Well, they do say we don't believe him because of this, and we believe he wants it to happen, and all that. You've heard all that. They even make up things like some of those things you mentioned about my background. Right. even make up to make me wrong. Well, that's why I asked, rather than, yeah. than uh, positing as being right. true. That's why I asked. Right. Uh, but at the same time, what, the last question, what's next? Where do you go? What do you do? How do you, if you believe in this, as you do, and believe, forget the word for a second, accept it as credible, accept it as credible, Okay. what do you do next? Well, I think we've touched on it. We, you, you get people to look at it with me. You get as, uh, people who are not hooked, who are responsible clinicians to look at these cases with me, which we're beginning to do. You look at individuals in greater depth to see, well, could there be some right. dynamic explanation in them uh, as individuals? We're doing a study like that at the program at, at uh, Cambridge Hospital that I'm connected with. Uh, you uh, do rigorous psychological testing on them. Mind you, uh, whatever the theory is, it has to take into account also the physical findings, the right. tight association with UFOs, the fact the phenomenon occurs in children under three years old. You look at it in other countries, which we're doing, in indigenous cultures. How do they see the phenomenon? We uh, met with a Cherokee medicine woman, and they, uh, she says, oh, they've been in touch with these beings for a long time, and, but they don't like to talk about it because there's enough, people have enough trouble being Native Americans to have to bring right. this kind of wrath upon them. Selves. But you, you ask people of, uh, who are competent uh, clinically, scientifically, to look at the phenomenon with you and, and let's explore it together. A number of scientists have been interested in doing this. Philosophers are, I do get a lot of support from philosophers. Uh, 
there's the a most credible, who, who would be the best name that's supportive, you think? Well, Rudolf Schild, who's an a, a internationally renowned physicist at the Harvard uh, Astrophysics Lab, thinks that work like this, and you mentioned near-death experiences, King, Ken Ring's work, will tell us more about the cosmos than what we're going to learn looking through telescopes. Um, professor of uh, philosophy, Michael Zimmerman, at, yeah. um, uh, was former chairman at uh, Tulane University, uh, says this is something that is of extraordinary importance for philosophy, for humankind, and uh, he's been interested, again, in the questions you and I have been talking about, about what is it about a worldview, our worldview, which makes this impossible, that yeah. people cling to so desperately when something new comes along. I know people that will say about somehow of intelligent life on other planets. They'll say it's, it is, would be ridiculous for us to assume that we're so smart, that we're the, that are here on this planet, we're the only people who somehow have advanced to the level or that, that we have advanced to. And when you look at what's happening in places like Rwanda, you wonder how far we've advanced. Yeah. Anyway, I'm out of time. Human Encounters with Aliens, the book Abduction. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. In we was coming back from New Caney. We had been to a bingo game, Betty Cash, uh, my grandson, Kobe, Landrum, and me. And um, we started seeing the light over to the left of us. And uh, it seemed to be way off, and but we got to wondering what it was. And... Uh, the trees every once in a while would make it disappear and then it would come back into view. And as we went down the road, well, it seemed to get brighter. Were you afraid at all? Not at first. We was just curious to, you know, and wondering what it was. And because uh, Kobe kept saying, uh, see it, Grandma, see it, Grandma. Uh, he'd say, see it ain't Betty, and uh, so we said, yeah, we see it, and he'd say, what is it? And uh, we said, well, we don't know, you know. Did you estimate what color it was or how big it was? Well, it was, um, when we was, uh, first saw it, it was um, about half as big as a water tower, and it looked, um, you know, it was a big, bright, kind of glowing light, you know. And um, so as we traveled on down the road, well, uh, it disappeared and then it come back into view. And um, you think it was following you at all? No, we were going like we were going toward where it was. And it was kind of like it was floating uh, on to the, closer to the left of us. And um, so when we get down here, I'll show you exactly where it's at. Were there any other cars on this road? With no, there was none. If it's, you know, it was kind of cloudy and had been bad. And um, it was, um, when it's like that, there's not very many people travel through here because it's, you know, in the winter time, people stay at home mostly. And um, what time of the year was this? It was um, uh, the 29th of December of 1980. About down here. Uh huh. Down here. What about you, Kobe? What did you think of all this? Well, it was scary. One of the things I never forget. 
bright? Uh, yeah, it is bright. Have you ever seen anything that bright before? No. What would you say it looked like to you? It looked like a diamond. Making a big noise, like a train or uh, it sounded like a or a jet. Jet engine. Now, right on down, a little bit further down, right. About where that sign is. Yeah, just a little past that sign. Okay, can you hold the mic on? Yeah. Okay, now once we get past the sign, uh, what began to happen? Hold on down a little bit further. Well, all at once I saw it when it come in to the left of us, and uh, uh, I screamed on down a little bit further, right along about here. And uh, it was raining and everything. We couldn't pull over it out of the road, but it, it's just like it, it come down and it was just, you know, hanging up there. And um, Was it blocking your path? Well, I, I feel like if we had a went on, we would have burned up because you could feel the heat from it. And it was um, about the size of a water tower. And when the fire had come out, out the bottom of it, it would, it never did get only just, you know, past, you know, up above the treetops. I mean, but, you saw something that there was actual flame shooting out of? Yes, sir. The, the flame, when it would come down, it would lift. And when it would let off it would ease back like it was going to come down you know was and, making a loud noise yes sir and it, uh when the flame would come way down it sounded like you've heard um um let me explain it to you this way uh oh uh, like when the, anybody's doing welding you know how that mm -hmm. the sound except it was loud 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 and when it would come down well that's when it would lift up and um uh, it just sat there suspended and Betty got out, Betty Cash, and walked past the front of the car because she was trying to find out what it was. Kobe and me, we got out for about um, two or three minutes, I guess, and uh, he was trying to get away from it to run. And um, I grabbed a hold of him and he and pushed him back in the car, and he grabbed a hold of me, uh, pulling and screaming for me to get back in the car. And I got back in the car, and I was begging Betty to get back in the car because I felt like we were going to burn up. And um, so uh, all I could think of, I've been raised that, you know, the world would be destroyed by fire, you know. And the whole area looked like it was, you know, from the light of it, looked like that the whole woods was going to be set on fire. And... Uh, Kobe was screaming and everything, and I was afraid that he was going to have a heart attack. So um, I began to talk to him that, you know, if he saw a big man, it would be Jesus, and he'd come to carry us to a better place. And um, he asked me, well, what about his papa? And I said, we'd go through Dayton and pick him up. That's all I could think of to calm him down enough that he, without, that he wouldn't die. Cause I've always felt like that anybody could be scared enough that they would die. And um, I was scared and he was scared and Betty got back in the car and she was scared. But when it that last plane come way down, it lifted off and it went over to the right of us. And it just gradually went up and went, it didn't foof off. It just, you know, gradually went. And we, when it got out in our way, we started on down and we could see it. But we saw the saw helicopters. How many helicopters? And they were well, a lot of. I mean, they were more and more because they helicopters kept coming, you know, from all directions, and uh, they were the kind that uh, reason we was so curious about them. They had the double rotaries to them, you know, the kind that we never, I had never saw before. What happened when you got out of the car? Well. Uh, when I screamed for her to stop, uh, 
if we'd have went on under it, we'd have burned up. And um, we got out in the car um, to see if we could figure out, you know, what it was. And I think we got out in the car to run. But Kobe was screaming and hollering and trying to get away from me. And I knew if I let him away, I don't know whether I'd have caught him or not. So I grabbed him and pushed him back in the car. Was it threatening you at all, coming no. toward you? No, it was just hanging there. And when the fire had come down, it would live. And then when the fire lit up, it was like it was coming back down again. Was it and hot? it was hot. It was real hot. What happened to you? And, um, well, I didn't realize at the time anything was happening to me, except I was afraid. I got back, uh, when we got back in the car, and I finally got Betty back in the car, and uh, it lifted and went over to the right of us. We was on our way home. Well, um, I had a headache, and Betty had taken a terrible headache. And um, it, Kobe said he was burning. And it was just like we had been out in the heat and got sunburned. You know how to um, win anything or chap you in the wintertime and you feel like you, you know, you're burning? Well, that's the way we felt. And I got home and put uh, baby lotion on us. And by 1 o'clock, we was blistered. And Betty, uh, the lady that was with us, Betty Cash, she had big blisters on this side of her on her neck and on her face and uh, it was big old knots they hadn't come out into blisters and um, I tried for from I was on the 29th of December and I tried till the 2nd of January before I got her into a hospital or got a doctor to see her because she didn't have any people here and I somebody had to take care of her and when I got her in the hospital all of them down there asked if we was a burn patient. And she burned? said no, yeah. But I mean, I wasn't as bad as she was, so I felt like that I had to stay able to take care of Kobe and to take care of her. What, what did the doctor say to you when he examined all three of you? Uh, well, he, I, that's what he asked us, had, had we been burned? And we told him not as, you know, no because we hadn't, we thought he meant like burn with fire or, you know, something like that. And um, when Betty broke out in those big old blisters and all of her hair started falling out, well, um, they couldn't understand it and he couldn't find out what was wrong with her. And uh, so um, I knew it had to be something that happened with the object because we were, all three of us, we had the same symptoms. We were hurt bad. Where were you hurt the worst? Well, um, just Did my eyes. Medically, what exactly happened to you and, and Kobe? Uh, Did it hurt your eyes? It hurt our eyes because uh, my eyes swelled and they teared. But when I'd go to sleep at night, next morning my pillow would be completely wet. And it looked just like they were just going to... Deteriorate. What did it do to your skin? Well, same thing. The blisters, and and then the blisters. You know, when they started getting better, they were runny blisters, and it looked just like that. My whole hand was going to bleed. My arm. What did the doctors say when they examined you? They uh, said it had to be some sort of radiation from the symptoms that you were experiencing? Uh -huh. Were you experiencing anything else besides uh, vomiting, the burns? Vomiting, and um, like him, he had no control over his bowels or his kidneys. And um, we couldn't eat, and we drank water. I mean, it was just like we were dying for a drink of water. We didn't want, we didn't want coke, we didn't want nothing but water. We couldn't get enough water. When you came out of the car and looked and you saw this thing move away, what exactly went on when you saw it lift off? Well, I said, uh, I was sitting back in the car. I had got back in the car, and I says, thank God it's going, you know. And I says, uh, uh, let's wait a minute, and we'll be ready. Uh, then maybe we can, you know, get under it. So when it lifted, well, um, we ready to crank the car up, and we moved. 
on under it. I mean, on down the road because it had drifted over to to the left of us, and um, that's when we begin to see the helicopters. What kind of helicopters? Well, um. What made you think they were helicopters? Because uh, they sounded. I mean, the rotaries and everything. You could hear the swish of them. You could hear the roar of them. And um, Did they you look could like see them from the a glow from the object. You could see the helicopters. This object was it suspended by a cable or something from one of the helicopters? Well, I could, we couldn't tell. But it, uh, you know, when it was hanging there, you know, like it was going to fall, we could hear a beep, and it was a loud beep, a shrill, shrill, shrill beep, beep. How many helicopters were there in the air? Um, well, we didn't count them here. When we, we went on down, it's about four miles. We stopped and we counted uh, the helicopters. I counted 22. 22 helicopters. Well, Kobe said, there's another one. And I said, yeah, that makes 23. But I actually counted 22. And uh, I could have counted one once or, you know, or twice maybe. But if they'd have been eight or ten of them, that big of helicopters, it would have been too many. Were they chasing this object? Well, they were. Uh, it was like as if they were around it and and coming to it and everything. Like it was, this object was in trouble. And they were, you know, maybe gonna, you know, be there in case it fell or something. What happened then when you saw the helicopters and this object in the air? Well, it um, kept drifting off to the right of us. And when we got almost to Dayton, we could yet look back and see the, uh, the object, the glow of the object. And there were yet helicopters come, yet coming and going toward it. What do you think all this was? I think it's something the government has, and it got out of control. You don't think it was a uh, spaceship from another no, planet? You I think sure it was don't. Earth bound? It, I think it was Earth. I think it was made by man. What do you think all this was? I think it was something the government had up there. If they didn't, if it wasn't government, the government knew about it because the helicopters were up there and they were our, our government helicopters. If they don't know about it, somebody's done ripped them off. Did you contact the Air Force after your incident happened and ask them what they were doing out here? Yes, sir, and they said they wasn't out here. They said the helicopters don't fly at night. I know they fly. Did you try to contact the Air Force about what you saw? Yes, sir, we went to uh, um, Austin, to the Air Force Base, and begged them for help. What did they tell you? They said if we wanted any help, we would have to find us a lawyer and file some papers. Did they deny having these helicopters in the area? Oh, they didn't know nothing about it, but they had the, the map spread out. And we couldn't see because our eyes were burning so bad, and the lady that was in there pinpointed the road to us. But yet they didn't know nothing about it. Did the Army have anything to do with this? Did you try to contact the Army? We tried to contact everybody and everybody denies it. But a pi uh, one of the um, National Guard pilots said they were called out that night by Montgomery County Sheriff's Department. But when he was cornered, he didn't know nothing about that either. He said that Miss Cash and me told him. Miss Cash wasn't with me when he told me. It was my friend, because Miss Cash was in the hospital. Why was he called out? For this object. They were investigating an object. Right. But you don't think it was extraterrestrial. You think it was an Air Force project. And they should be responsible for the damage they caused right. you and your family. Right. Well, if, if it wasn't put there by the government, the government knew about it, and they have control over the airways, why didn't they stop it before it hurt us? What happened to Colby? Well, um, like I say, he... Um, he got most of his hair come out, and he had this diarrhea, and um, had no control over his bowels or his kidneys.
to the doctor. And it was a blister. The doctors say that was a radiation poisoning. And they said there's a possibility that it was radiation poisoning. And if we could, said we need to find out the kind of radiation it was because if if it was radiation, by the time he's 15 to 18 years old, he'll come down like with leukemia. But it won't be leukemia. And if they was to treat him for leukemia, it could kill him because of the radiation that would be in his body. And did you tell the Air Force what your doctor told you? Yeah. And what did they tell you? They said, well, there was nothing they could do about it. And if we wanted to do anything about it, we'd have to, if we could find us a lawyer, we'd have to uh, find us a uh, civilian lawyer and file these papers. When you told the Air Force about this, did they absolutely, without a doubt, deny anything was up at all, or did they say no comment? Well, they wouldn't comment on it. But um, they didn't deny it. They didn't deny it. They didn't comment on it. No, they didn't deny it. And uh, what do you plan to? That's serious. Hoping to come down. You know, in his later years. That could affect his health. What are you going to do? That's why I'm fighting now. What are you, what are you doing now? Well, I'm, I'm trying to find out what it was. If I can't find out what it was, maybe I can find out what kind of radiation it, it was putting out. Because we certainly didn't pull our hair out. We didn't burn ourselves. And I didn't uh, injure my eyes to where I can't see out of one of them. And I sure wouldn't injure a little seven-year-old boy. Because have... I love him with all my heart. You still have marks on your hands. Right, and I'll carry them as long as I live, I guess. On my arms. On my feet. Those are all from the incident that occurred right. three years ago. Right. And think, and think I don't have something to fight about? What about your eyesight? Well, I can't see none on the side vision of this eye. And it's just like I'm using one eye. I can't see how to, to read anymore. I can't drive the automobile no more. So when I have to go somewhere, I have to get either my daughter or my daughter-in-law or my grandson to carry me or I walk. So when you and your grandma were, were driving down here, you saw that bright light, were you afraid? Well, not at first, but after he got on closer to it, I got scared. Did it hurt you? Well, it burned it. When I got home and when I went to sleep with my grandma, I, I had blisters on me. And, uh, well, it wasn't that same night, but the next morning I had a bunch of blisters on my face. And um, my grandma doctored me. Did you feel sick at all? Yeah, I vomited a bunch. What do you think it was out there? Out there that night? Yeah. Well, I, all I can think of is the government project. If you didn't know about the government, what do you think it might be? I don't know. What exactly did it look like to you? Do you think it was being chased by helicopters? I think so. What exactly did it look like to you? Do you think it might have been a spaceship? A no, it couldn't have been a spaceship. Why do you say that? I don't believe in spaceships. And it looked like a diamond shape? Did it move fast or slow? It moved slow. Was it loud? Yeah, it was loud. It's, it, it sounded like a jet engine, but it sounded like about five jet engines put together. What did you see out there that night? Did you see helicopters? Yes, about 23 of them. What were they doing? They were right above, they were right above the uh, object. 23 helicopters. I mean, they're big okay. helicopters. How big was that object, would you say? As big as a helicopter, or...? Bigger than a helicopter, but as big as a water tower. And the helicopters were over it. What were they doing? Shining lights on it or anything? 
No, I believe they were guarding it. Do the helicopters have their lights on so you could see if they were Army or Air Force or you could identify what they were? You couldn't really tell, but they were double rotary like the government's helicopters. Now those double rotary propellers are used by helicopters that haul around big things. They're transport carriers. Are you scared anymore? Well, I don't have, I hadn't had a nightmare about it. What, what kind of nightmares did you have about it? Well, like, like it was. Wow. I mean, what did you dream about that, that scared you? About the object. What was it doing to you? It was about that night. It was just like we was out here. You don't dream about that anymore? No. Well, I hadn't for a long time. So you're not scared anymore? Well, sometimes I think about it and I get scared. What do your friends at school think? Well, most of them don't believe me. Does that bother you? No, because I know it's true. Mrs. Andreas, and you were on the spacecraft that had examined you. Do you have any physical scars or, or any evidence that, that you were examined? Well, I went for um, uh, x-rays of my head and everything, and there were no breaks in the bone. Uh, however, the doctor said something as far as um, uh, finding out about any um, anything in the membrane, any scar or anything like that. I would have to go through a uh, different type of x-ray and the radiation uh, level was quite high and he didn't feel as if I should do that because unless I had a tumor or something like that. You know? All right. Okay, I want to get back to your story now. They examined you. Obviously you were in some pain mm -hmm. or at least uh, you were starting to show signs of fear then. What did they do after they had examined you? Well, after they had examined me, they uh, took me back to the cubicle where they told me to change into my regular clothes. And from there, I was escorted um, into this room that appeared like a Quonset uh, hut-type room, half cylindrical. And within it were eight glass-like chairs. And they sat me down in the uh, one of the chairs to the right, and uh, this hood, glass-like hood, came down, and I could hear it click around me. And then. I felt very cold, as if I was freezing, and it seemed as if I was there for a very long time. And from there, I was taken and uh, put into another chair to the left, and again, this glass-like hood came down and sealed around me, and I could hear the snap, and they also put some tubes in my nose, and I could hear it, uh, as they put them into the glass, I could hear it seal-like. and. Um, also a tube for my mouth, and they told me to keep my eyes closed, and uh, they gave me this reddish uh, color uh, liquid to uh, take, and it tasted very sweet, I felt very relaxed from it. And Meanwhile, this uh, gray liquid um, fell down, you know, was falling on my head, and it was filling up in the bottom of the chair, and um, when it was filled, uh, it vibrated like a whirlpool around about me, and uh, from there, um, they drained that out, took the breathing tubes out, and uh, um, set me on this track where one being was in front of me and one being was in back of me. And at this point, they had their different uh, uniform. It was a, a sort of a, a shiny aluminum-type uh, uniform. And they put two black hoods on their heads. And we went out of this room into a very dark black tunnel that seemed as if it was chipped out of stone. And there were other entrances, I could tell, because their uniform... Uh, sent off like a bright light, uh, and I could see like darker holes off to the sides. And um, did you start thinking that maybe these weren't angels after all at this point? I I, I didn't know what it was. I really didn't. But know the term was. alien still didn't no, cross your mind. I wasn't. Yeah. You know, you I weren't in that frame of mind, obviously. No, I yeah. wasn't aware of of UFOs. Mm -hmm. You know. Okay. So anyway, um, I was taken through this tunnel and we came we were coming up to a mirror and I thought we were going to crash right through the mirror and instead we passed just like we passed through 
the wood in my home and we came into this red atmosphere and in this red atmosphere there was no vegetation uh there were just large buildings with square windows and there were these strange uh creature-like uh, beings uh having like two stalks for a head with very large eyes on the end of them and they were crawling all over the walls and in and out of the windows and all over the place and um, as I said, the two beings had hoods, these black hoods on, and evidently they thought that I, my, fed, my head felt very heavy. Evidently they thought my black hair was uh, covering enough for me that I, you know. Didn't but need I, anything yeah. else. Uh, so uh, we passed through this area into a green atmosphere, and it was beautiful. It was just fantastically beautiful. There were things there I can't even describe today. They, you know, nothing that I could relate to in this um, in, and planet Earth, and so um, uh, I saw different things there, a, a dome city. A was this, their, this was obviously their planet then? No, this was not their planet. They told me that this was the high place, okay. the highest place. All right. uh, they had told me their planet, the name of their planet, but I couldn't pronounce it. There was too many consonants in it. I, I've, I've tried. Did they uh, say it was in this galaxy or in another, or... They, they they gave some writings, but I, I'm not really aware of what they are. I mm -hmm. just passed them on into the, the investigators. Um, and in this high place, uh, this green atmosphere was just beautiful. Um, and I came up to some um, uh, crystals that were just hanging in midair, and I did become fearful. I wanted to go back at that point because it was awesome. And they just wouldn't uh, go along with my request and we kept on going until we came to this area where this um, large bird stood and the beings just got off the track and I was left there alone where this huge bird was and it was alive and there was light in back of it just radiating kept on radiating and I kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter and these sparks of gold were flying around in front of me and I felt like I was being consumed by fire and at that point I must have passed out or something happened because the next time I looked uh, the bird was gone and there was a pile of ashes there and uh, out of these pile of ashes a large gray worm appeared and then from the side a, a voice spoke to me a very loud voice and called my name twice and said you have seen and you have heard do you understand and I said I, I don't know I don't understand I don't even know why I was there and uh, then the voice talked with me and reassured me that everything was all right uh, that some of the pain uh, that I experienced was because of my fear um, and I just felt better I felt elated uh, and joy filled me I, I felt very happy at that particular point and um, then the voice told me I would have to return and um, I was taken back uh, by the being to earth yes I believe they also gave you a book yes is that true uh, there was an exchange of the Bible and they passed me a blue book which they said I could have for 10 days and to look within it and grasp as much as I could possibly grasp and I was not to show it to anyone however I did show my daughter Becky mm -hmm. which I should know and uh, when she put her hand on it her hand sort of glowed uh, and after nine or ten days the book was gone gone disappeared yeah. just into the air. Mr. Fowler, have you heard uh, any stories similar to this one? Uh, everything that Betty has said has a similar parallel to other cases except the, uh, the anomaly, I guess would call it, of the, the bird experience. Mm -hmm. And I, kinda, I don't really know what to make about the, the bird experience. The only thing that relates internally uh, with a bird is that these uh, aliens had a, a similar bird uh, insignia or symbol on, the, uh, on their shoulders, you know, and whether this was an, an induced hallucination an object lesson that was set up, I really don't know. You almost could draw an analogy to a South Sea Islander, for example, mm -hmm. who drifted out to sea and was out to sea for many, many days in his canoe, and he sees this huge aircraft carrier coming, mm -hmm. yeah. and they send a small boat, they pick him up, they bring him back, they give him a physical examination, they put him in the hospital, and then he, when he's resuscitated, they bring him to the day room, and he sees movies, he sees yeah. TV, all these modern inventions. And then they take a helicopter, they bring him back, they dump him on the beach, and he goes back and tries to relate this whole thing in terms of his own religion, his philosophy, and within the limited, yeah. uh, you know, people would think he was probably right, crazy. crazy. <laughs> About the book, how much do you remember? They asked you to grasp what you could. What was in it that you um, remember? Well, the, the first three pages were very bright light. Uh, there were approximately 40 pages. It was very thin, thin paper. Um, 
the uh, writings on it, there were symbols, there were numbers, there was strange writing, there were pictures of the workings of the craft. Um, there were just so many different things, and they've come forth, and I just handed them to the investigators for them. To, I don't know what they are. In other words, you handed the notes that you took on it, or, or uh, the different things that have been revealed to me. Yeah. I've just passed the writings and things over to the investigators. Also, my daughter Becky is able to write the same uh, strange um, writing that was in the book, and at a uh, few occasions I have been able to too. And it is not like automatic writing where something takes hold of her hand. She's just able to sit down and she writes them. She has page after page of this particular stuff. It's incredible. Unfortunately, we are about out of time. We are out of time. But I must ask you, if they were to come back, would you go with them? If they if they wouldn't put me through the physical examination, probably yes. But other than that, no. Needless to say, this is an absolutely incredible story. Whether or not you believe in UFOs and close encounters of the third kind, I think you will agree, ladies and gentlemen, that this is an absolutely incredible revelation. It, again, it is in a book called The Andreasen Affair. It is the documented investigation of a woman's abduction aboard a UFO. Our guests on K-Earth and Transition have been Betty Andreasen and UFO investigator Ray Fowler. Thank you both very much. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. With that being said, I want to let you guys go. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank the Ghoulies for Hot Rods from Outer Space. I want to thank the Faded Disc Archives, as well as Wendy Connors for some of this audio. As you know, I love getting it out there. A little UFO history for us. I want to ask that some of you guys please review my podcast if you like it. And if you don't, that's fine too. Just let me know what I need to change. You can hit me up at theufos at yahoo.com, hit me up on Facebook, and just shoot me a message. I'm very responsive. If you guys want to share with me your UFO stories, alien abduction stories, or any others, also just hit me up. Next time I want to go into some abduction encounters, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Until then, keep kicking it.